I can see very well at the distance, but when it's close, it's kind of, I gotta go like this. It's a sign of uh, experience in life. <laughs> Praise God, good morning, everybody. And I hope you're enjoying this wonderful weather that we had yesterday and today. After driving around with my wife yesterday, got into the car, put my hands on the steering wheel, and released them right away. It was so hot. And the first thought that crossed my mind was, ah! The second thought was, January 15th, minus 30. <laughs> Immediately, I became extremely grateful for plus 29 and a half. That's at least what my vehicle showed. When we talk about God, about Bible, about the reality, about everything in life that relates to our faith, to our spirituality, uh, what we believe about the eternity, about what comes later, we need to understand that where our faith comes from, or the basis of our faith, call it religion, call it whatever you want from that perspective, although I know that the world religion is not overly popular sometimes in our circles, where it comes from, there is a context to it. So uh, it is very important to understand that uh, Christian faith and uh, uh, the faith before Christianity came to the scene of the world did not get created in some vacuum that was uh, completely culturally uh, void of any other influences or uh, that there were no other, uh, how would I call it, uh, uh, foreign influences that would affect uh, what, uh, what people used to believe back then, but just as today, in the past, there existed what we would call today superpowers, political superpowers, military superpowers, uh, economic superpowers, cultural superpowers. So uh, at the time of Jesus, and probably preceding Jesus maybe by two, three, four hundred uh, years prior to him, uh, one of the greatest economic and cultural uh, and military powers was Greece. At the time of Jesus, that changed, uh, Roman Empire became the most prominent uh, and dominant uh, uh, empire or power in the world. But going back to two or three hundred years uh, before Christ, when uh, Greece was the most uh, powerful nation culturally, economically, and uh, in a military way, it is very important to understand that uh, in the Mediterranean region, what was going on, uh, on there, what was happening there, people were, uh, were transitioning from their native tongues. Uh, everybody started speaking Greek. Now, that happened over the period of uh, uh, hundreds of years, but eventually people started forgetting their languages. So when you think about the, uh, the writings of the scripture, so for example, the Old Testament, uh, how many of you know what the original languages of the Old Testament were? Anybody? Can I hear anybody? Okay, I'll volunteer. Hebrew, right? Hebrew is one. What's the other one? Aramaic. So let's stick with these two. Now, what's interesting, when you look at the New Testament, most of the writers of the New Testament, when they quote the Old Testament, they quote from Greek version of the Old Testament, not from uh, Hebrew version of the Old Testament or Aramaic version of the Old Testament. Now, the Greek version of the Old Testament was called, and still is called today, 
Septuagint. What Septuagint uh, uh, is, there was an official translation authorized by the high priests and the synods to translate the Hebrew Bible uh, from Hebrew and Aramaic into Greek. And this happened by uh, 70 or 72 scribes who worked about uh, two or three centuries before Christ on translation. What happened meanwhile, so from that translation, and the reason for the translation was because people were forgetting uh, the Hebrew language. And because Greek was most uh, dominant, what happened over a period of two, three hundred years, that the original writings in Hebrew and Aramaic slowly disappeared, and the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of, uh, of the Old Testament, started uh, getting more prominence, and eventually during Christ's time, it became the only version of the Old Testament that was known to the people at that time. The Hebrew version uh, resurrected only in about uh, uh, somewhere between 6th and 10th century AD, Anno Domino or Common Era, as people would call it. So uh, between 600 and 1,000 years after Christ. So the early church relied primarily on the Greek variant or version or translation of the Old Testament. Now, you may be wondering why I'm talking about this. I'm not here to preach about the history, although history is extremely important in understanding what we believe. But there are uh, significant theological and spiritual implications in what we're talking about here, in particular when it comes to our understanding of God, number one, who God is, how we need to approach God, and, uh, oh, that's me, I'm, I'm seeing some verses there, uh, thank you. Uh, uh, who God is, and how we understand how we need to live in God. Uh, Jewish nation or Israelites, again, did not live in a vacuum. They were not separated from the rest of the world at that time. Different powers, travelers were going through Israel, influencing Israel uh, in one or the other way. So when you look at the New Testament time, you see and you clearly read that that the Roman occupiers, as they were called at the time, that they were present in Israel, and with their presence, uh, they had certain influences on the development uh, of Jesus' ministry, or uh, uh, how those things worked out in the development of the church as well. And after Jesus uh, uh, died and resurrected, the development of the church was within the Roman Empire and eventually became the most dominant uh, religion in the world as it is today as well. The same thing or a similar thing was happening a thousand years before that. When you think about biblical characters like Abraham, Moses, etc., they lived in a cultural and historical context where there were certain influences and uh, certain spiritual and religious developments around them that had a certain impact on how they were dealing with things. So for example, when you read Genesis chapter 12, you see that Abraham is traveling. He got uh, called by God to leave his uh, uh, home and move with his wife to, to a new land. As he's traveling to the new land, he goes through the land of Pharaoh, he comes across Pharaoh, he uh, presents his wife, Sarah, uh, tells the Pharaoh, this is my sister, not my wife, please don't kill me. It doesn't say, please don't kill me, this is not my wife, it says, this is my sister. So Pharaoh goes and takes, uh, wants to take Sarah to be his wife. As he's doing that, 
suddenly there is an affliction that happens over Pharaoh, and Pharaoh goes to Abraham and tells him, why did you lie to me? Why did you tell me that this is your sister and not your wife? I could have died because God was going to kill me if I continued keeping her as my wife. Why is that significant? Uh, This is not the story of morality. This is the story that the knowledge of God did exist in the world, and I'm talking about one and only God, the creator of the universe, did exist in the context where Abraham lived, where later Moses lived. Remember the story of Moses, and we're going to read from that verse uh, shortly here. Moses was born uh, uh, as as a Jew, but there was a killing of the Jewish children or babies at the time, So his mother put him in a bassinet down the river Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter found him and raised him as one of the Egyptians. Moses was raised there. He committed certain crime, had to escape uh, uh, from Egypt, and goes to the mountains where he's having an experience with God. Now, this experience, if you can give me uh, the next slide, please. Uh, In this experience, Moses is taking care of the sheep, goes on the mountain, uh, sheep are all over the place, and suddenly Moses sees a burning bush. The bush is burning, but it's not burning up. It keeps burning. So Moses approaches, gets kind of a little bit fearful there, and then uh, God tells him, or whatever the voice came out of, uh, it says that the angel of the Lord spoke to him and said, take your shoes off, because the ground that you are standing on is the holy ground. So Moses does that, God scared, has, a, has an experience with God, and later on God tells him, go back to the Israelites and tell them to figure out a way that I am going to deliver them from Egypt and I'm going to take them to the promised land that I promised to Abraham. And then Moses said uh, uh, simply, okay, I will do that. I will go there. But then Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and said to them, the God of your father has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? So what is very interesting about that is think about the Israelites for 400 years, uh, according to the biblical account, living in Egypt. They know that there is a God. They don't know God's name. They don't know who God is. They know that that was God of Abraham uh, and of Jacob, of Isaac, that that was a God of their forefathers. But they don't know his name. Then uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me. Now, when you think about God, do you ever think of God? Does God have a name? What is God's name? Okay, I hear lots of Yahwehs and maybe a Jehovah or something like that, right? Now, what's interesting is when you read this passage in Exodus uh, 3, 13, and 14, it doesn't say Yahweh. It says, I am who I am, in English translation. In Hebrew, it says Yahweh or Jehovah or however tetragrammon which is that uh, Y-H-Y-W thing that we uh, pronounce as Yahweh or uh, some pronounce as Jehovah, 
the meaning of those words or four letters is I am who I am. There is a deep significance to that. So this is the first occurrence in the Old Testament when God calls his, uh, himself by a name, which is uh, Yahweh in Hebrew, or in Greek, Septuagint, and that was the reason why I was mentioning Septuagint. Septuagint says, Ego eimi ho on. That is the name of God in Greek. Ego eimi in Greek means I am, and ho on, I am who is. So the meaning of God's name is I am. Not I was, not I will be, but I am. The significance of the name of God is what uh, Slater revealed through Jesus Christ in the New Testament and how Jesus treats himself and addresses himself in the New Testament, which causes the Jews of the time to want to stone him and kill him because he blasphemes by calling himself God. Now, what's, uh, the, another curiosity that you will find uh, in the scripture is that the New Testament never even once refers to God as Yahweh. The New Testament strictly refers to God as God, in Greek, ho theos, New Testament was written in Greek, uh, or as the Lord or kurios. And Jesus is always referred to the Lord. Now, Septuagint, the Old Testament, talks about God as the Lord. So there is always discussion between different translations. What do we rely on? Uh, do we rely on the Hebrew translation or, or Masoretic text that came only in the, uh, between 6th and 10th century uh, after Christ? Or do we rely on the Greek? The early church relied strictly on the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And there is a significant importance for that. Can I have the next slide, please? Because the meaning and the words that Jesus uses uh, about himself is the same as God uses for himself in the Old Testament. So God talks about uh, uh, I am that I am. I am the existing being or he who is. I am he who is and who will be. The meaning of, uh, 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 of the word Yahweh or uh, ego emi on in Greek is that it extend, uh, extends when it comes to the, uh, to the time. It extends from now to the future and to the past as well. When you think about the eternity, eternity is everlasting now. Eternity is not something that's going to happen 10,000 years from now. There is no time in eternity. Eternity is everlasting presence, everlasting right now. Can I have the next uh, verse, please? Next slide. In John 8:58, when Jewish authorities came to him and asked him, who are you? What do you claim that you are? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is not saying before Abraham was, I was, or had been. 
Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. This depicts Jesus' everlasting nature. This depicts Jesus' eternity. Jesus talks about something that's temporal from the presence of us humans as something that happened in the past. For Jesus, that is right now. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. So what we perceive as the past, for Jesus, this is the present. So when people talk about the foreknowledge of God or people talk about predestination or something like that, think of it only from this perspective. The timeline is linear. The eternity is all-encompassing. Eternity is not linear. Eternity is presence right now. So when God looks at the timeline, for God, what's going to happen in a thousand years or what happened uh, a thousand years ago is right now. So when you pray and you think there is no time for God to answer, remember one thing, that your today's prayer was heard by God in what we would perceive as the past tense. So when you pray, there's no need to be, okay, if you're praying for something to arrive from uh, Asia, Europe, or whatever, and you're thinking an airplane will take 12 hours to fly. God knew your prayer 12 hours before you prayed. I've had many experiences, and I've participated in a fulfillment of somebody else's prayer. I remember once, I think I shared that with the church here. God spoke to me to give a certain amount of money to a person. Sunday evening. That person prays Monday evening at 6 o'clock, 24 hours later. I call that person at 8 o'clock and tell him, I need to give you something. Are you available? That person says, yes. I go there and give him an envelope. That person calls me half hour later, three hours ago. We prayed for this. And God answered within three hours. My answer was no, God didn't answer uh, within three hours. God answered within minus 24 hours because the money was already in the envelope before they prayed. This happened to me in my life many times on multiple occasions. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus exists, and I don't want to say live, exists. That's a different category, exists. At the very beginning, right now, and at the very end. That's why the Bible refers to him as Alpha and Omega, and pretty much the entire alphabet in between. He is Alpha and Omega. Is, not will be, not was, he is Alpha and Omega, right now, this very moment. Right now, this very moment, he exists at the creation of the universe. He exists this very moment from God's perspective at the very end of the universe. And he exists right now. So God's spirit is all permeating spirit. Can I have the next verse? When Jesus talks about so they ask him, who are you? And Jesus answered them, the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Now what's interesting in these verses here is Jesus is the portal when he says, I am, he's the eternal one, but he's the portal to the eternity for us as well. No one comes to the Father. Father expressed himself as I am, the one that exists throughout the eternity. So through Jesus Christ, we have a portal to the eternity. Can I have the next uh, slide, please? uh, When Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth, the truth, Greek word truth, in this case, and please remember this, there are 14 different words in classical Greek that are used for the word truth. In this case, the New Testament writer, John, uses in particular the word aletheia. There is a significance to this word, aletheia. Aletheia is a compound word. Uh, it consists of a word letheia and what is grammatically called uh, Uh, privative alpha, or alpha privative. Privative means depriving. So uh, in English language, we have, let's say, we have word political, which means for a person, it's somebody who's interested in politics. Then we have a word apolitical, uh, somebody who's not interested in politics. We have a typical, and we have atypical. Typical is something that's usual. Atypical is the opposite of usual, something that's not common. Symptomatic, something that's a symptom. Asymptomatic, it doesn't follow the same rule. So uh, that means alpha privative or deprives or changes the meaning to the opposite of it. So in Greek language, letheia means forgetfulness, oblivion, or concealment. There are four or 13 different words in Greek for truth. The writer specifically chooses this one. In Greek mythology in the past, Lethe was one of the rivers in the underground, in the Hades. And one of these, uh, in this river in particular, Lethe was the river of forgetfulness. So whoever drank from the waters of Lethe would forget and would uh, have concealed, their uh, mind would be completely uh, confused. Lethe, who drank from the waters of Lethe, would forget about their earthly life would forget about their purpose, would forget about where they're moving forward. Alethe means revealing or unconcealing or unforgetting. So when Jesus says, I am the truth, or I am aletheia, means that I'm the one that unconceals, that reveals, that opens up, that unforgets what was deposited in your heart, in your spirit, before you were born. The Spirit of God permeates everything on this planet. The Spirit of God, or the mind of God, permeates you, permeates every living being, permeates non-living things. So as an example, you have monarch butterflies. I don't know if you're familiar with monarch butterflies. But monarch butterflies are born in one part of the world, and they know how to fly to their destination, all of them, at the same time, because it was deposited in them as intuition of some sort, which is the Spirit of God, which is the mind of God God that permeates everything. When Jesus says, I am unforgetfulness, or I am the truth, 
That means that Jesus truly desires when you enter through him to reveal God and God's spirit in you. He wants to reveal who God is. He wants to reveal the blessings of God. And he demonstrates those things. Uh, I'll give you a freebie one. The word way, when he says, I'm the way, is Greek word hodos, where the exodos or exodus comes from. Greek ex means out on the road. Exodus. So that's where the word comes from. So Jesus is that way that leads you into the truth, which is not factual truth. We're not talking about facts. There is the difference between facts and the truth that Jesus wants to say here. What Jesus is saying is, I'm one that is revealing God to you. Through me, you can come to the Father. Can I have the next slide, please? When Paul talks about Jesus, and he happens to be on the Mars Hill, so all these Stoics and different philosophers come to him, and they're mocking him and asking, what are you talking about? What God are you talking about? And then Paul goes around and he says, I'm telling you about the unknown God. I've seen altars that you guys have here about the unknown God. I'm talking to you about the unknown God. And then he says, for in him we'll live and move and have our being. And some of your poets have said, we're his offspring. Now, remember what I mentioned earlier, that Christianity was not born in a vacuum, but in a significant influence of different cultures as well. This verse that Paul quotes here, for in him we live and move and have our being, is a quote from Epimenides of Crete, who was an ancient uh, philosopher about 600 uh, uh, BC, who talked about the existence of God and that in this spirit uh, uh, of God that we live in God. So when you connect that with what Jesus is talking uh, in the verse that I read previously, Jesus reveals this God and Paul says, or quotes Epimenides, who is considered in the Bible to be a foreign prophet, but nonetheless a prophet, somebody who talked about God in a proper way. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't quote him. We are in him. We are inside of him, and he permeates us. All our life is in him. Now, you may wonder, what does that mean for us? When Jesus says, they will come and ask me, where is the kingdom? Is it there or is it there? And then Jesus answers, the kingdom of God is in you. God, from the same perspective, because we live and move and have our being in God, God is in us. The purpose of this explanation here is when we understand that God is in us, we will understand that we do not need to appease some distant, transcendent God that is somewhere far, far, far in heaven, wherever that heaven is, when we pray to him. But that that God, through Jesus Christ, who is the truth or unconcealment, or uh, uh, the one that opens, that opens the unforgiveness, that opens, uh, uh, sorry, unforgetfulness, and that opens the presence of God to us as the portal into heaven, 
we are in God. So when you pray, what you need to know, an extremely important fact, when you pray, the Bible says, believe that you already have received it. You see, sometimes we're confused by the experience of Daniel where it says uh, that Daniel prayed and then waited for about three uh, weeks or so for answer to come to him. We don't need to wait for three weeks for the answer to come to us. Through Jesus Christ who reveals God to us when we pray, you can rest assured. Can I have the next uh, slide, please? You can rest assured. Actually, yeah, that's, that's the one, sorry. That there is one body and one spirit, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So when you look at yourself in the mirror, what do you see there? Do you see a sinner in the hands of an angry God? I don't. I see an image of God. I see a temple of the living God. That's how I perceive myself. Because God is in me. When I pray, I don't pray so that some distant God would answer me prayer, but I pray because that I know that the Spirit of God is in me and that the answer to the prayer only depends on one thing, whether I'm going to have unwavering faith or whether I'm going to doubt that what I pray is going to be answered. If you have the Spirit of God when you do pray, know one thing. God answers. Jesus is the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. In him, you have an approach to God, the truth, he reveals God to you, so God is not hidden anymore from you. God is not some distant God, but is ever-present. I am, right now, this very moment, eternity in you, and through him you have the life, life everlasting. So when you pray, know that God does answer. If you pray, believe that you have already received it, and things are going to materialize in this reality, the way you pray them. Now don't pray, God, if your will. Jesus said, whatever you ask, whatever you ask, it shall be given to you, if you believe. Whatever you ask. When you start your prayer with God, if it's your will, please, this and that. The first sentence that you made there is the sentence of doubt. If your will. If it's in your heart, and if it's a good thing, it is God's will. If you're praying for a blessing, it is God's will. Father is a good father. If you pray for fish, is he going to give you a snake? If you pray for bread, is he going to give you a stone? Father is a good father. You're not in the hands of an angry God. God loves you. God wants to have communion with you. That's why he sent Jesus Christ to come to earth, to incarnate himself, to die on the cross 
so that you would have life everlasting, that you would have this life, life in abundance. Abundance in every regard. Abundance of spirit, abundance of blessings, abundance of health. God's desire for you is to live a good life. Sometimes people come and say, well, we should focus uh, primarily on the spiritual things, not on the material things. That's what's called dualism. It's a separation of the spirit and body. Jesus Christ came on earth in both spirit and body to demonstrate that God is interested in both of those things in our lives. His desire is to bless your body, to bless your spirit, to bless your soul, to bless every aspect of your life, that you would prosper just as your soul prospers, that every aspect of your life would prosper as your soul prospers. If there is sickness, it says through his stripes, we're healed. That's why Jesus came. He became uh, poverty for us. In the Old Testament, it says, let the weak say what? I am strong. I am strong. What is the word I am? It's the name of God. It's who God is. You know how in the Old Testament it says, do not use God's name in vain. When you say I am and attach a negative or a bad connotation to that, you're using God's name in vain. When you say I am sick or I am poor or I am wretched, you're using God's word in vain. That's why it says, let the, uh, let the weak say, I am strong, because that is who God is. God wants to be strength in you. So say and speak loud to yourself. You don't need to yell on the street, but when you're by yourself, declare the goodness of God. I am strong. I am prosperous. I am healthy. I'm full of God's grace. I am full of love. I am full of all the goodness. I am. Speak the word of God from that perspective so that the blessing of God can find fulfillment in you. God's desire, Jesus is not on earth anymore. Jesus is in spirit. He's resurrected. You are the body of Christ, or we are all. We're the expression of God's life. We are one spirit. We're all the branches of that one tree, which is Christ's body. Work the expression of God's life. So live a good life so that uh, God would be truly expressed through you. We're all created in the image of God. And that's why there is a particular reason being in the image of God, that God desires the goodness to abide in you, the goodness to be upon you. Can I have the musicians here? Heavenly Father, we pray for your goodness, Lord, that would come upon us. We pray that, you, that we would have full understanding that when we speak the word, I am, being in you, being in one spirit, being in one body with you in Christ, 
that your desire for us is goodness, that your desire for us is health, that your desire for us is prosperity. That when we pray for those things that we would truly understand that you're a good father, that you're a good father that wants to bless us, that wants to fulfill us with the good things, with healing, with prosperity, with salvation, with grace, with forgiveness, with everything that's good, everything good that comes from your throne. May your blessing be upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.